Hi, welcome to the Awe and Wonder podcast. I'm Sarah Kinsella. I'm Brenda Del Monte. And we're here with Chris Bouguet today. This is so exciting. We're talking all about literacy in this series of our podcast. So we're going to pick his brain and, and have a real fun time today, I think. Chris, can you introduce yourself? Although most people probably know who you are, but just tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, sure. So thank you for having me on the podcast. My name is Chris Bouguet, and I, um, well, I guess my day job is the Assistive Technology Specialist for Loudoun County Public Schools, which is in the Northern Virginia area. But I'm not a big fan of that job title. Um, like, so that's just the title. Like, there's a there's a specialist tier of administrators, and that's the tier that I'm on. So there's a, a bunch of different administrators that have specialists at the end of theirs, their term. It's, it's whatever the, the term is, uh, how I think of myself is as an inclusive design facilitator. Um, my background is speech-language pathology, and I was the speech-language pathologist at an elementary school for about three years when my school district said, we're starting an assistive technology team. We'd like you to be the speech therapist on that team. And that was many, many years ago. I have never looked mm -hmm. back. Um, in fact, I think of myself as someone who works in inclusive design with a speech therapy background as opposed to a speech therapist that works in inclusive design, if that makes mm -hmm. sense. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's the day job. Yeah, that's the day job. And then on the side, uh, you know, my side hustles are I do a lot of different stuff. So um, I've had the great fortune to write a couple books. Uh, the most recent um, solo book is called The New Assistive Tech, Make Learning Awesome for All, the second edition. Uh, that's published through the International Society for Technology and Education. And that's all about how to design educational experiences that are inclusive of everyone using technology. And then the other book that I've had the great fortune to write uh, in the last, or I guess came out in the last year and a half or so, is called Inclusive Learning 365, EdTech Strategies for Every Day of the Year. And that's me and three other authors, um, Mike Murata, Beth Poss, and Karen Janowski. And what that is, is exactly how it sounds, 365 strategies. It's one strategy per day. Um, that so you don't have to feel so overwhelmed, like, oh, how am I going to read this book? Well, I'll just read one page a day. And by the end of the year, you've read 365, and maybe you've adopted a more inclusive mindset about how you can use technology to design inclusive educational experiences. And then besides doing like presentations and stuff like that, I also have the great fortune of co-hosting a podcast all about AAC called yeah. Talking with Tech. <laughs> That's a great podcast. Yes. yes. I should listen. Thank you so much. And your um, 365 book, we just were doing a training yesterday in a school district. And um, that was that was out as a giveaway because we love it. And we we reference it all the time. And this teacher was like, yes, I won. They were so excited <laughs> um, because it's so practical. And it's just like an easy, okay, this makes sense. And I feel like I could pass this on to someone. So such a great well, thank book. you for saying that, Sarah, because that um, was one of the goals of writing that book was really like so oftentimes you go to a uh, a webinar and get like the theory, you know, yeah. but you don't often get the, yeah, okay, but I'm an educator with boots on the ground in an experience where like I got to roll up my sleeves and actually do something. And we're like, well, here's 365 really practical strategies that you can implement. Um, and it's really meant for any educator, like it's, you, you might think, well, oh, uh, 
Chris is a, someone with an assistive technology background, or he's got speech language pathology or assistive technology in the sure, title. But sure. really, we are trying to um, be the zipper between general ed and special ed and be, make that the Venn diagram of what those two circles are become just one circle, you know? Yeah. It's just ed, you know? You're yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, love it. And that's what this group was. It was a mix and it was the gen ed people were pretty excited about it too. So that, <laughs> that's awesome. That's awesome. Chris, we like to ask people about students. We get, like to keep our podcast kind of student-centered and that's what it's all about for all of us, right? So when we're thinking about literacy, is there one student that comes to mind for you that kind of made you really either think outside the box or get you excited or um, just kind of set you on a, that path for what you wanted to do with literacy with students? Do you have a story? I do have a story, but it's, um, well, it's probably not what you're thinking. It's not one student that sort of blew my socks off because look, they can read now, right? Um, it's sort of the opposite of that. In fact, that's a quote I hear all the time. I mean, I just, I wish I had done like my doctorate thesis. I don't have a doctorate, but if I do a doctorate thesis, I wish I had could go back in time and count all the educators that are like, who would have thought they could have like, well, what if we just thought they could have, right? Like, <laughs> right. I didn't know that they could read. I didn't know that they could. What if we just presumed that we were going to teach them to read instead right. of being surprised that that's a thing, right? Like, oh yeah, I didn't know they could do that. Yeah, we, we, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to presume they can do that. And it's our job mm -hmm. to help teach them how to do it. Right. Um, but my one student specific story is, um, like I said, I was one of the founding members of our assistive technology team. I was the speech therapist on that team. There was some occupational therapists and some other educators. And um, the very first assistive technology evaluation or assessment that I ever did back in probably 2022 or 2023, we'll get hung up on the years, but many years ago, I went and saw this little girl in a maybe kindergarten, probably first grade classroom, kindergarten or first grade classroom, but it was uh, um, an ID program, like, right, um, for um, intellectual disabilities is what it was called. And this girl was completely non-speaking. I would have said non-verbal back in the day, and now I'm using the words non-speaking. Mm -hmm. And uh, back, back, back then, 2002, 2003, this girl not speaking, can you guess what I suggested for her? And not just what I suggested, what the speech therapist at the school suggested, what my partner who came out, came out with me suggested, what the teacher thought was the right move. We thought, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to give her this thing called an iTalk. Have you ever heard of an iTalk? Hmm. I, I think I, I don't know. I know. Uh, it's it's probably good, Sarah, that you don't know what it is, because what <laughs> it is, is you've probably heard of a Big Mac or a Little Mac, which are these one button hit devices. Mm -hmm. This and iTalk is like two Little Macs put together with a piece of plastic in between. So it's one self-contained unit. And okay. let's see, Brenda, I'll, let's see if you can guess. Ready? Little, maybe everyone listening can follow along and guess. What do you think the two words I suggested should go on these two buttons uh, to teach this girl uh, words and communicate? What do you guess, think are the words? I'm going to guess yes and no. Yes and no. Brenda, <laughs> you would be exactly right. You would win the prize. And uh that's exactly what I suggested. And of course, the buttons were green and red. So why wouldn't sure. we put yes and no? And yeah. so, again, 2002-2003, if I could go back in time, of course, I would do some things way differently now. But 
fast forward to, mm, I guess it was probably 2013, somewhere, maybe 10 years down the line. I'm sitting in my car, uh, 10 years of being on this assistive technology team. Um, and I'm sitting in my car in a parking lot at our local, one of our local high schools. And I have a box in the back of this car given to me by one of my colleagues it says, here's this technology that you're going to deliver at the beginning of the school year to this high school classroom. So I go to the box and I whip out and I got the sheet of paper there. And I'm like, oh my gosh, look, it's this girl from the, my, this girl at my first evaluation I ever mm. did. And That's I look over girl. across the line and I see there, Brenda, I see like, Okay, what's the piece of equipment that I'm going to be delivering? Ten years later, oh. guess what the piece of equipment is? Oh, no. Not the it's same. Same two-button device for ten years. It's We've been teaching this girl yes, no. It's like, oh. well, have we really been teaching her yes, no? <laughs> and I remember having this moment sitting in my car, um, yeah. bawling. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, yeah. this is not why I got an education. Like, right. I thought, like, I thought I was doing the right thing. And mm -hmm. I think... I mean, and again, I don't have numbers to back this up, but if you go back in time, you climb in your DeLorean and you go back to 2002, 2003, the vast majority of speech therapists, educators, people were thinking that was the right thing to do, right? right, right. We've really evolved in time. Um, and that, so that particular, you said, let's, let's make it student focused or learner focused here. That girl was like, oh my gosh, I... I was the one responsible to do this evaluation and suggest for the team. And how many other, how many other kids like her did I fail? Right. Mm -hmm. So right there in that moment, I drew a line in the sand and I said, I got to do th some things differently. And I started doing um, a lot more research. I started listening to professionals rather than listening to the 95% of people and tell me what, what they were doing. I started looking for the 5% of people that would maybe do it differently. Um, and of course, the most significant one is I need to find AAC users and listen to them. I know you just interviewed somebody on your podcast. We interview AAC users on our podcast. Let's just listen to them. What's worked for you? Tell us what's worked for you. Then we can replicate those strategies for other people. So that was yeah. a, a big a uh, catalyst for me, a big, a big moment in time for me was like, uh, I need to do things a lot differently. You know, I appreciate that story. One, because I think it, so many people are afraid to fail that they don't try at all. So we do have to know. And, and I think it's been super fun for us to interview all these people we admire and have them go, yeah, I did that wrong. Yeah, I simulated everything. Yeah, I, you know, like doing things that we thought were the right thing at the time. And all you can do is go, you do the best you can with the tools you have at the time. And that's where you were in 2002, right? But I will say that I see that a lot. I see that we, I see, well, let's start with more and all done, or let's start with five buttons. We'll get to literacy when they can handle 26 buttons on a screen, right? I mean, that's kind of the idea of like, well, until they can handle, you know, a field of 26, we're not doing literacy. And it's like, there is so much more to it than that. And I have done evaluations and then, you know, five, six, seven years down the road, it doesn't work anymore. And I'm back and I, or it works sort of, and I look and it's still at the 15 button level or something. And I say, think one of the things I want to challenge just all ongoing therapists to, to be doing is, can they do more? Can they do more? And sometimes it's like, well, I don't want to overwhelm them. It's usually more overwhelming from the, for the adult than it is for the user. It's usually more overwhelming for the teacher, the parent, the somebody else than it is the users. Like, finally, I think there was some data recently about that. One of the reasons why we have device abandonment is not enough language as opposed to too much. Right. 
So I think that's such a good point to make that we have to be um, willing to go mm, do better, know better, do better. Yeah, a thousand percent, Brenda. And we, we still see it. It's I always like to say that when it comes to the world of AAC, there's no better time in history than right now to to be working in it and to maybe be needing it um, because more people know these sorts of things than ever. And that said, we still have so far to go because there are so right. many people like you just described, Brenda, that's like, oh, well, can we start with 15 buttons? Well, we can, but there's a lot of reasons why you wouldn't want to do that. I would much rather, um, and we do this, we talk about this a lot in our trainings, um, to start with as many buttons as possible or start with a robust language system, you right. can always pair back. And so right. one of the fundamental principles we talk about is the least dangerous assumption or the least restrictive option. So mm -hmm. when I, whenever you're faced with making any sort of uh, decision about uh, literacy, AAC, or really any instructional practice that you're going to be thinking about, any consideration... The way you make that consideration is think what's least dangerous. Um, mm -hmm. And that's not a principle that I came up with. Well, the least restrictive option is me taking the um, least restrictive LRE, environment yeah. and the least dangerous assumption and putting those together and calling it the least restrictive option. So that's the good. least dangerous assumption was an article written by someone named Ann Donnellan and uh, expounded upon by someone named Gerald, Cheryl Jurgensen many, oh, many yeah. years before me. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I've heard you talk about that before, and I just, it's so true. And, and that comes up a lot with people that we've been talking to, and and thankfully it does. And we just need to keep listening to each other, and, and I love that we can share these stories. And, and like you said, listen to AAC users who are going to remind us of that as well. Mm -hmm. um, that's, that's a great principle. Do, in your role with AAC and literacy, what other guiding principles have you learned along the way? Well, okay, so we start with believe they can, believe that they will, right? So mm -hmm. believe that a student will, but then also, Brenda, to what you were saying, believe that the educators that you're working with can change their mindset to mm -hmm. be like, yeah, why am I starting with 15 words and on prolo quote? Like, maybe there's a, a different way that I can do this. So believe that... Um, the learners will learn whatever you're attempting to teach them. And that includes being able to, to uh, say whatever they want to say, however they want to say it. Like that's the end game, right? Is to be able to create novel utterances that you generate off the top of your head. And in order to do that, to be able to say whatever you want to say, you need to have literacy, right? You need to be able to spell right. to an to an extent that word prediction can help predict. Uh, you know, can you can recognize the words that and choose them from a list, um, and then you can be generative in creating the the words. So you need to have uh, so so start with that. Start with that, um, and then the second thing there is so. I think a lot of places, and I bet a lot of listeners to this podcast are familiar with an environment where the kids might have access to a core vocabulary board. Is that mm -hmm. a fair assumption, do you think? Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. yeah. Which is, again, a, better to have that than not have it. But I mm -hmm. think something that um, I've been sort of screaming from the rooftops for years now has been, that's not enough. Like, And that's not, it's something. But again, how do you get to literacy if you don't have the alphabet? And right. so really what you need is a robust language system. And what does a robust language system entail? Well, it entails the belief that they can, but believe they believe they can what? 
Well, they'll learn how to spell. And how are they going to do that? With a keyboard. So if you're going to be using word prediction and they're going to be using, they're going to be spelling words, then they might need access to a keyboard so that they can flip over from whatever their system is and hit to a, whatever their uh, picture system is, whatever the, 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 so, well, I guess you put it this way so that a keyboard is part of that system. That makes right. sense. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. And you know, I've, I mean, I have set up kids who um, they're, they're direct select, but they can't do more than about eight or 10. And we have a, we have a button that goes from A, B, C, D, E, F, right. And they, it breaks up the alphabet a little bit and it's cumbersome for sure, but it, they can't, they can't accurately access the 26 when, when it's out there, you know, we don't have the IntelliTools kind of stuff like we used to. There's not the gigantic keyboards like we, like, you know, but um, I feel like one of the things that you might be able to speak to is the, just the variety of keyboards that are available in technology in general. Well, yes, there is a variety of keyboards. But Brenda, let's go back to what you said there, because I it, people listening may have missed it, and I just want to highlight it. You sort of suggested that you started with the 26, and then you rolled backward to hiding them or to trying to look for an alternative keyboard. And that is... Um, very, to me, that is something we absolutely need to do. Uh, mm -hmm. The use of an alternative keyboard really should be secondary to using a QWERTY keyboard. So right. start with a QWERTY keyboard. And if you're like, what's a QWERTY keyboard? It means like a standard keyboard. If you, anyone listening, just think of a keyboard in your mind and or bring it up on your phone. You'll see that it's in the alphabet, Q-W-E-R-T-Y, uh, right? right? QWERTY keyboard. Um, you start with that. And try to modify that if you need to. Give it a different contrast. Maybe make it um, uh, change the font if you can. If you have a physical keyboard, you need to put wiki sticks around them to make them stand out. Put dots on them to make them stand out. Put uh, uh, really, I'm I'm digging into all of the occupational therapists that I've had the great <laughs> fortune of working yeah, with over yeah. the years. But taking little glue and uh, putting a little glue on it so you get that like that 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 uh, tactile sensation on certain ones, but do all that first before you go looking for an alternative keyboard. And the reason I say that is because, again, what's least restrictive? Well, typical QWERTY keyboards are going to be way more uh, um, available in different environments on different right of hardware uh they're going to be more easily to teach by you know, by other educators as soon as you get something that is more um uh let's call it tier three something more this individual kid i had to customize it highly and adapt it highly now i got to take this keyboard and i got to plug it in or i got to remember to switch to it each time i, I got yeah. it's 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 not saying it's some kids need some kids absolutely need it, but there's a lot of things to try before you get there that would be more universal, you know. And right. even just a key guard, if you're on a dynamic screen, you know, if that's what I think too. Like, if as long as you are at 60 buttons or higher, that QWERTY screen is going to fit, and so you can do a key guard on an iPad or on any dynamic screen and still give some support around that, you know. But, um, and then, and then it's easy too. It's easy to set up because we know all of that piece is, you know, if it's going to take a long time to set something up, it's not going to be used very well, right? So yeah. yeah, having it available. You know, and I know that in, um, you know, inclusion is big for you, Chris. And I'm just wondering, you know, for the, for the maybe, for the helpers, maybe for the pairs, maybe for the gen ed teachers who, who, who are like, we can't include those with AAC in, 
literacy instruction because it takes too long, right? If there is this, it uh, we they it takes them too long to what does what does inclusion in general education you know around that access and what people's understanding about what time is required for some of these students to respond in, alternatively. Well, okay. So of course, wait time is a big thing, but let's really dig into that. Is this, is um, uh, people listening to this podcast right now are learning right now, right? So is mm -hmm. there a day in anyone's life where they stop learning? I don't think so, right? Like, and every single day you're learning. So when it comes to the presumption, well, okay, so some kids might take a little bit longer to teach the alphabet and teach phonemics and uh, phonemic awareness and eventually teach, um, uh, or I guess not eventually, just teach fluency. But we're going to make sure we're putting drops in buckets right now, wherever the kid is. So there might be someone listening right now like, but, but Chris, my kid's 21. They're going to be aging out next year. You're suggesting I start literacy? Yes, today they're 21. They still have their whole life uh, you know, ahead of them. Yes, let's start to, right now. Now, and if you're a, if you're an ECSC or preschool or a, uh, uh, your um, early intervention, you're listening to this podcast. Start right now. Well, they're too young to do literacy. What? No, you. There is no like wait till you're three to start introducing the alphabet or something. Kids, when they're really like little babies. Parents are reading to them. Parents are singing alphabet songs to them. You, it's never too late and it's never too early to start working on these sorts of things. The certain, the, as soon as you can start putting drops in buckets that that way, the sooner those buckets will fill up. Fill up. And for some, for 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 everyone's bucket fills up at a different pace, right? right. So let's right. just let's just give as many as much time as we need, right? I love that yeah. analogy. And I think I think what you what you're really saying too is that learning is happening even if there even if there isn't a lot of output right now, right? It's if we're only measuring learning on all the output, then that is pretty time consuming. But if you're giving, if you're going in with, I'm presuming that they are absorbing the information even without testing them if they learned it. <laughs> Then we're moving forward. Well, Brenda, okay, this is this sort of gets back to uh, my story at the beginning. Is that how did it, how did this little girl go ten years being in being exposed to yes no with an IEP system that that we have a meeting every year? Like, would we be mm -hmm. looking at data? Like, okay, so clearly something didn't work. Well, and what I think you're getting at here, Brenda, is the idea that. Data collection, especially in special education, often seems to drive the instruction. And we and well, I gotta get data. I gotta get data. I gotta get data. Well, I this little girl, I'm getting data. And yes, uh she's she's 50% accurate, you know. And look, oh, this time she was 52% accurate. Oh, and now, you know, like, wait a second, that's yes, I'm collecting data, but is it the right data? And um, and because we're so data driven, um, I have not, nothing against data, right? I, I love to make data informed decisions, but we often look to expression for that data component as opposed to reception. Meaning, how, uh, how, how often, how many drops am I putting in the bucket? Should I do, for, for, let me say it, to say it this way for a typically developing student in a typically developing classroom, you would expect um, a teacher to do some sort of lesson, expose kids to some material, and then 
there'd be some sort of quiz or some sort of assessment to see if you know that right. material in a, in a traditional model, right? But in special first. education, it often is not that way. It's like mm -hmm. quiz, quiz, quiz. I'm yeah. here, I'm going to give you three picture symbols. Which one? Which one? Which one? And it's like, wait, have you ever taught what these symbols mean? Right. Um, and so that's really where it starts is thinking of maybe um, in the world of AAC, we talk about something called the 80-20 rule. So that means like it, in relation to core vocabulary and vocabulary we teach, we say present the vocabulary and teach the vocabulary 20 20% should be fringe and 80% should be core. So let me just tie that all together for everybody. Core vocabulary is the most frequently used vocabulary. It's a small set of about 300 to 350 words. If we teach those 350 words um, at 80% of the time, then we get kids 80% of the way there, right? And the fringe vocabulary, we can't leave it out. You can't get to that goal of saying whatever you want to say, however you want to say it, without teaching that fringe vocabulary. So that's 20% of the time. But what if we took that same ratio of 80-20 and applied it to our instruction? We're going to do 80% receptive and 20% expressive, meaning I'm going to teach it to you and share it in audio stories and sing songs and, um, and visuals and videos. And I'm going to present it to you 80 percent of the 80 ways and and or eight times before I assess it twice you know right and that gives the teachers permission too to say yes I can do this I can teach this and I don't need to be it's more teaching and less testing and and I can do what I'm what I know I need to be doing yeah for sure Maybe we don't need data at every single session of the kids expressive language we can right. do that you know, at, a, at a, again, a radio ratio of 80-20. We right. certainly have never taken that level of data for verbal, um, for speaking people. So that seems wildly unfair. But I have two things about that. One is sometimes the data shows you the boredom. So it's like, you'll see plus, 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 and then all minuses. They're done. They don't want to, they don't want to answer. Yes. My name is Johnny. They're the eighth time. And the goal is eight out of 10 and they only always get seven, but the data is clear. They are saying yes appropriately to a certain point, And then, that, and then they're just done. Right. Mm -hmm. So I would say too, sometimes it's like, what is the, what does that data actually look like? Cause is it really every other or is, or is it, are we showing that we're fatigued with the, the, with the test itself? Right. Yeah. I think, I think you specialize too in, in thinking about that kids, all kids learn in so many different ways. So if we can present information in lots of different ways, they learn, but likewise, if they can respond in different ways, then, then they we can find um, that they do understand. So it's not always high tech that's the best answer. It's not always that they have to spell the whole word. Sometimes the first letter of a word is sufficient for what we're trying to get at, right? And so um, depending on how you've presented it, but coming back to the core and fringe, I would say some of the more motivating words to spell are the fringe because right. they're in the device and they are, you know, this kid likes vacuums and that guy likes, you know, Dumbledore and you know that guy, like there's sometimes this stuff isn't in there. So that the most motivating vocabulary can be the fringe vocabulary. And you can start by saying, hey, do you want D for Dumbledore, H for Harry Potter, right? You, you don't have to have them 20 minutes of spelling something out. We can do literacy skills in ways that keep it, keep it fun. Well, especially with word prediction, and that's a great just rule of thumb is model the core and then use the keyboard for the fringe, spell the right. fringe, 
right? Model yeah. core, spell the fringe if you need a sound bite. That's there. good. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> Chris, um, is there a certain area of literacy or a certain component that you just get, you're just most passionate about that just really gets you excited? Well, just the idea in general. I mean, again, I'm excited about the the, the notion that um, more people are talking about it. You know, ever since uh, Dr. Karen Erickson and David Copenhaver's book have come out, A Comprehensive Literacy for All, there's this explosion around people talking about it. This, this oh, right, we should be teaching these kids how to read too. Like, oh my gosh. Um, yeah. and it's still, it still seems like an aha moment. And I feel like there's lots of places around the country and the world that are still having that aha moment. Right. right? Like, oh, right. Like, we didn't even think to teach them like the alphabet or teach them sounds, you know, and how those right. alphabet and sounds go, to, go together. But what if we did? And how would we do that? And how we could make it fun? Um but I think to answer your question more, so I think more people are talking about it. That's ex that's exciting to me. I also love the technology aspect of it. In today's day and age, uh, again, Brenda, you were hinting at this. We have more technology than ever. Mm -hmm. So often it's maybe squandered. Oh, everyone has to do this Google Slides or everyone has to do this. Let, let kids choose or introduce them to technology. And with especially with generative AI now, you could mm -hmm. have kids creating images and creating backgrounds and creating stories and doing it in an authentic, in an authentic way. Like yeah. I want to create this story and actually share it with an actual population of people that want to listen to it. Like, so right. imagine these, these high schoolers that are writing stories and we're going to share them with our second graders because they need, they need, they need to learn how to read. Can you help second graders learn how to read? Like, don't just come to school because like, like when I was, most kids are compliant. They go to school because they are, that's what they're supposed to do. They get on the bus and they go and they just do it. But right. um, what, uh, there's a, there's, I feel like it's, there's a growing population of kids that sort of are like checking out of that. Like, yeah, do I just have to go to school? And I didn't get, <laughs> I didn't choose to do yeah. this. So how do we make the school experience more uh, meaningful is, well, what if you came here and learned stuff to actually solve an, an authentic problem or help somebody. So right. tying that back to literacy for kids that use AAC, what if you weren't just writing a story to write a story that nobody reads? What if you were writing a story to write a story that this person reads, these these mm -hmm. second graders read, or these preschoolers read, or we give these books, uh, we're going to put it out in the world for, um, I bet you, you too, and you bet you know people with it would comment on those books. Yeah, hey, let's put it up here so yeah. people can read it and give it. Oh my gosh, look, uh, Brenda and Sarah shared it and uh, they wrote comments back on our book. Like, oh my gosh, someone's reading my book. Like suddenly it becomes... Um, Helping people is often motivating for kids and it becomes a necessary thing. That's why I got to learn it. That's why I want to be there. That's what is because I want to help other people. Mm -hmm. I love that. And I love that personal, meaningful part. One of my favorite classrooms um, one year decided to write letters to with it, partnership with um, people in a, you know, assisted living facility. And oh my goodness, it was like meaningful across the board to everybody. Everybody loved it. They would write back. They couldn't wait till the letters came. Parents would send in pictures so that they could talk, of, they could write about the picture and say, this is what I did this weekend. And everybody just was so excited about it. 
Exactly. And Sarah, what you're really talking about there is one modality for meaningful expression. And in today's day and age, there's so many. Imagining writing text messages, imagine writing the script for a video or putting the captions on video, right? Imagine right. making a picture book that has pictures that go along with text underneath. So there's so many different ways. We, there's, I mentioned you responding. Okay, let's respond to somebody else's. Let's go on Amazon and write a review. Do you know what I mean? Under mm -hmm. the teacher's generic account, obviously. But you know what I mean? Like, there's so many authentic ways to engage, and the technology is there to help us do it. You know, I think that COVID did so many things, so many, so many things. But one was, um, it definitely challenged teachers to think about what is what technology is out there because now I have to reach my kids through technology, right? <laughs> and so there was a lot of an, an explosion of just things that became more available and, and people became more aware of Epic or um, Tar Heel Reader or all these different things that were that were already out there, even Bookshare, right? right? They've been out there for a while, but now it's like now we're utilizing it. And so there was some good things that came out of that too. But I know that when I was working with kids, they were that my students were feeling alienated because their lack of literacy skills prevented them from participating in the text thread here or the snap there or that kind of stuff. And so I think we we don't think about how much of our writing is social now because of technology. And they there was an alienation piece. I tried to get creative. I got a step-by-step. -step. We did some would you rathers and they would drive around and do would you rather in a driveway and take data and we'd come home and do some things. But, you know, they definitely were feeling isolated because the lack of being being able to um, communicate was requiring more literacy skills than they had been exposed to. So it's I think teachers learned that there's a lot of ways to, to present information. And then I think we also learned that, man, communicating through text starts at a pretty young age now. And that in itself is super motivating. Yeah. Let me flip that for a second, Brenda, too, and say, um, I totally agree with everything you said. Um, and I totally see that uh, as well. And I also see going in the opposite direction, yeah. sort of kids that are texting and, and adults that are texting. I bet you today have texted somebody and you included an emoji, right? Or a GIF, right? Mm -hmm. And that is, what is that? If that's not a form of pictorial communication, that right. is mm -hmm. AAC. And so again, there's a, the next generation of, of kids are sort of learning that AAC is not this separate thing that only a small population of kids get. Right. It's the it, a, a great thing we could be doing right now is exposing more kids to AAC, bringing, doing experiences like Let's bring in a cart of iPads and let's do an, a 30 minute, 45 minute exposure of this is what modeling is. And this is what you're going to see some friends use when they come into their classroom um, and you can use it too. You can model it and let's have these sorts of um, boards as supports in the classroom for any student. And that will help bring again those that Venn diagram of special ed and general ed. It'll help it overlap. You know, it's a way to yeah. bring those two worlds together. Yeah. yeah. And I think, you know, what played into kind of the idea is, do I have to go to school? Is some people didn't go to school for two years and the, the yeah. world kept spinning. So now what? Now I got to go? Are we sure? Are we sure we have to go? <laughs> so I feel like too, when, when we're, as we entered, re-entered school, it was up to um, educators to go, you know, 
there's a purpose for all of us. We learn more from each other than you do in isolation. And so you have to pull these kids together and, and blend that, you know, what's the point of leaving your home and then going to a classroom with only two other kids for the whole day. If you leave your home and you're in a classroom with 30 other kids, it, then you have, then that's, that's not an experience that you can recreate at home, you know? Yeah. Brenda, I just love, oh my gosh, we are kindred spirits because um, two, two big points. The first one is during the pandemic, a question I often asked, uh, in fact, I asked, again, if I could go back and do my doctorate, this is another one that I wish I could go back and actually tally up the scores, but I'd ask educators, I'll ask your, your listening audience right now to think about it. Did you know any students, when we went to emergency distance learning, did you know any students that actually did better? Like mm -hmm. they, they didn't feel the pressure of going to school. They could work on their science when they felt like they wanted to work on their science, not at well, I have to work at science at 2 p.m. on the afternoon because that's when science class is. And when you and when you ask that question, almost universally, I think my success rate to that answer is like 99%. They're like, yeah, actually, I do know a kid that did better. It's like, well, what does that tell us about how school was designed if some kids feel better not being there, right? Mm -hmm. That really is an indicator that we have to redesign it, right? right and right. then the second point that I want to make is, um, and Sarah, you asked this question about like, what else do people know about literacy? Well, I know this series that you're talking about is literacy like spelling in the alphabet, right? But I want us to really challenge the idea that literacy comes in different forms. There's financial literacy. And then of course, the big one that I'm a big champion of, I mean, I'm champion of all of them, but the one I've been really um, screaming from the rooftops lately has been computer science. Most states have school, most schools have, and most states have computer science standards now. And mm -hmm. I don't want the computer science standards to eventually us have to play catch up with that. Like, oh, right. These kids get to learn computer science too. Yeah, right, right now. And those mm -hmm. two things can really bleed over. So, all right, why am I going to the building? Getting back to Brenda, your point. Why am I going to this building? I didn't have to go there for because that's where the robots are. And that's where the technology is that I don't have at home. And I get to build and play with robots. And, and oh, what am I doing with these robots? I'm driving them around spelling words, or I'm driving them to on top of different letters, or mm -hmm. I'm using them to um, give commands and and read off words that are in these in these in code right but they're words mm. right which right. is just language and as soon as you start thinking of computer science and robots which most schools have them they're sitting in their library uh right. probably being unused but and they're certainly in most cases not used with students that are using AAC right. you bring those two worlds together oh my gosh you've got literacy well you got traditional literacy you've got computer science literacy you've got uh, kids wanting to be in the building and mm. the what I'm sure in your neck of the woods and everyone listening is experiencing the great resignation. Uh, you see it all, especially here at the beginning of the school year. Oh my gosh, so many places, their teachers are not coming back and we're not getting new teachers to replenish the ones that are leaving. Uh, mm. Well, maybe this is because uh, many of them feel like all they're doing is chasing I'm going to put this word in quotes, behaviors all day. Well, well, you don't do that when you're playing with robots and you're teaching literacy. You're not chasing behaviors. Right. When mm -hmm. kids have a meaning for being there, I'm helping people. They're not, uh, the behaviors aren't going up. You're not seeing those negatives. Uh, they're bored after plus, 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 negative, right. negative, negative right. in the data column because right. they're, they, they're, they're, they last longer because what they're doing is more meaningful and it's more fun. So it just, 
ties it all together in a meaningful right. way when you invite uh, people to part. And when you, when you consider designing experiences around what well, with robots, with technology that's available in the classroom that people don't have at home and doing it to help other people. Right. I love that. I love that. And it's keeping it meaningful. And, you know, that reminds me that I, a school, a high school I worked in and the, the robotics club, you know, they also had time and they, they need to earn service hours. And it was like, what could we do? It's like, Hey, there you go. And this is a perfect opportunity to bring in peers and have some great interaction. Yeah. Okay. So that's, amazing it's and and uh, adjacent to that are maker clubs right so maybe this is your thing oh, right. this year like oh well there's a maker club that happens after school well what are they making some doodad you know what i mean like uh well what if we made for an authentic purpose these kids they need to learn how to read what can you do in your maker club to help them create something and experience where they're learning these core vocabulary words and teaching uh how, how to spell them and how to put them in sentences and um do some sort of uh, predictive chart writing writing experience uh, around it how can you help us design there um with your maker club you know so again making for an authentic purpose Okay. But I think I think what you're also saying, too, is that it's not literacy doesn't happen at a certain time of day. You know, it's not like to, now is reading and then is writing. And 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 I know that they really want us to be doing, uh, you know, a couple of hours a day of literacy instruction. But it doesn't have to look like sitting there with a book for 120 minutes. It it can be it can and should be. Um, all over every subject as it is all over our lives throughout their day. It, it shouldn't be a stretch that there's literacy involved in every single thing you do, which is why literacy is the most independent skill that you can ever learn, right? So I feel like what you're giving great examples of is like, you might think that the robotics teacher, or even, even sometimes OTs and PTs will say, reading isn't my thing. I mean, you know, <laughs> so it's like the fact that, that you can put literacy in any um, instructional category, so to speak, or learning opportunity, and it enhances the experience. Well, 100%. I think there might be um, specific times, like these dedicated times, can be focused on very specific skills. So what sure. are we doing during this This. Uh, and maybe it's not a 90 minute block or even a 20 minute block, but during these five minute block, I'm going to really try and put as many drops in the bucket in the uh, decoding of this particular sure. uh, orthographic symbol, right? Sure. So sure, sure. we're, we're, we're going to focus in on that for that small period of time. But then what you're seeing, Brenda, is how can we weave it in all day long, just right. like modeling on the AAC. And if you use that drop in the bucket sort of analogy, um, that could be a great way to look at data is imagine a data chart that's counting how many drops am I putting in the bucket and how can I weave that throughout the entire day when the occupational therapist comes in, when the physical therapist comes in, how are we doing that during adapted PE? You know, how are we integrating it throughout? And then at, at home, like, all right, parents, we had your kid all day. Here's what we worked on. Here's a couple things you can do, how you can practice uh, the F sound when you're uh, loading the dishwasher tonight. Like, this is a fork, F, put it in the in the dishwasher and and just be uh, embedding it all day long. Right. Yeah, love that. So Chris, I think, you know, like you said before, more and more people are reading the books and the Conference of Literacy for All and getting on board and excited about um, doing more for our students in the area of literacy. But 
for those people that you might come across or that our listeners might come across that are still just a little reluctant or skeptical, what have you found to be a successful way to elicit buy-in from others? Well, let's start with what I found is not successful because again, okay. let's go back to the theme here is that uh, I failed enough for everybody. So um, something that absolutely will not work. Um, I know because I've done it and it took me again, like, so in the world of assistive technology, the way my service delivery worked for many, many years would be uh, a teacher or a paraprofessional or administrator would be like, Chris, we need your help. We're struggling with X. So I'd come out, I'd meet with the teacher and be like, here's what you need. You need Y. Here you go. Here's the thing. And here's how you use the thing. I'll be back in a month and I'll see how it goes because I got the next person calling to say, we need your help. And mm -hmm. I would come out and I would tell you what to do. And this it might be traditionally called an expert model. And man, did it feel good. Sarah, I can't tell you how great I would come home every night, talk, talk to my my wife and kids being like, dad, help people today. You know what I mean? And uh, <laughs> um, uh, man, am I so smart? And then I'd come back that month later and they had implemented the thing. And I'd be like, what's wrong with you? Why haven't you implemented the thing? Like, uh, clearly I told you the thing to do and I'm the expert. So what, like, don't you know how good it felt for me to tell you what to do? Uh, and, uh, what's wrong with you? And then I have that experience again. And I think it again, what's wrong with you and have that experience again, what's wrong with you. And finally, I realized what the common denominator was. <laughs> it was me. I was the one coming in, telling them what to do, realizing, wait a second, it's like Taylor Swift. Oh, I'm the problem. It's me. Right? <laughs> um, and so the strategy flips from being like, I'm not going to come in and tell you what to do. Likely you might already know what to do, my role is to become that facilitator. So again, I started off by saying, I think of myself as an inclusive design facilitator, not an inclusive design expert. That's why I don't like the term specialist. Um, again, I put that in quotes uh, because now I come in and the strategy that I use, so that's a long answer to get to your question, Sarah, is I use reflective questions and summary statements. So, well, okay, tell me what the problem is. What have you tried? How has that worked? Why do you think that didn't work? What do you think would try you would try next? Notice there that I'm not being like, here's the answer. Let me tell you what to do. I'm asking reflective questions to help tease you, uh, tease the answer out of your own brain. And then okay. when you answer those questions, I would summarize. So is it fair to say, I think you said, um, all right, so the reason you don't think that works is, is that right? And then you're gonna, by saying that summary statement, you'll then have, the teacher will have an experience where they'll go, no, Chris, you're completely wrong. That's not what I meant at all. And they'll deepen their understanding of what they want to try. Um, or they'll be like, yes, that's exi exactly it, right? And then they'll come to a solution on their own. Now, mm -hmm. I don't, again, 80-20 rule. I It used to be 80% of the time I would tell my tell people what to do and 20% of the time ask reflective questions. But I've changed that dance now. I lead with a different foot. Now it's 80% of the time I'm asking reflective questions. And 20% of the time I'm saying, do you mind? It sounds like you need to know about something. Can I share this resource with you? Or can I, have you heard of this particular strategy? Um, and then I'll, I'll, I'll invite myself or ask them um, for permission to share something with them. But I do that approximately 20% of the time where 80% of the time I'm asking those reflective questions. So I feel mm -hmm. like uh, Sarah, the way to get somebody really thinking when they're, you, you hear those sort of negative state statements or those, um, uh, yeah, I, I didn't think the kid was be able to do that, you know, or, uh, yeah, I, 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 we got to start with 15 words on a cell, right? Brenda, um, yeah. is 
well, why do you think we need to start with 15 words? Oh, you think it's going to be overwhelming? What evidence do you have to back up that claim? That's a little aggressive, but you know, like <laughs> why, what's making you think that 15 is not enough? Um, do you know anybody that that's worked for? Do you know right. kids that have worked with other, like starting to ask reflective questions in a non-passive aggressive way can really mm -hmm. open up people's minds to, to new perspectives. Yeah, that's great. And I love the examples a little bit. You, you gave us some examples of those questions. That's great to, to really think about. Yeah. That I'm sure that's worked well with well for you. And I'm sure there's a lot of us who are going to go tomorrow and try that out. <laughs> I'll tell you this too, Sarah, again, you got to forgive yourself because what I'm talking about there is coaching, right? There, the, the, you know, it's, a, it's a big word in schools right now. Uh, and certainly uh, Rachel Madel, the my uh, co-host of the Talking With Tech podcast, her and I do presentations on coaching, but it's a skill, like meaning it's a skill like shooting basketballs or, um, or throwing footballs or riding a bike. Like you don't just, oh, I listened to a podcast. Now I'm going to ask reflective questions. Right. Like you can start, there's an awareness level there uh, that, 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 okay, it's like, by listening to this podcast or watching this video, oh, I have an awareness now of what that means to where my feet should go when I throw a football or or how I should bend my elbow when I'm throwing the basketball. Oh, I should be asking more reflective questions, but it doesn't mean you necessarily can do that yet, right? So right. it means you got to practice. Okay, I'm going to practice doing that. And that means I'm going to screw it up and I'm going to make mistakes. I'm going to I'm going to miss shots and I'm going to throw interceptions and I'm going to fall off my bike and I'm going to slip back into old habits where I just, can I just tell you you need word prediction? I'm just going to tell you you need a key guard. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, right. I just want to jump in. Oh, wait, could I have gotten, did I just push them away a little bit farther and reflecting on your own practice that way? Right. It takes time and it takes practice. It does take time. And I, I think I started practicing in a really safe environment. I tried it with my own kids to do a little bit more reflective questioning and, and it, I'm still working on it. Totally. But I, but I think that, you know, you were saying that, the, 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 when you when we were the doing the I was an assistive technologist for a school district as well way back when and um when you're doing that expert model and when you're coming in and providing the technology you're suggesting that the te technology is the solution and when you're asking the right questions and you're letting them you're what you're reminding them that actually the human connection is the solution and it's happening through through a being aware of what you're observing and using critical thinking to try another way to do something. And if we go in with a, here's how you do this, that we've cut, we've we actually prevented them from doing that. It, we've prevented para educators and teachers from being creative, which is what's required because the technology will fail. But if the person observing can see I, I am observing that that technology is not meeting your need anymore. And I'm going to critically think about how I can make this task doable for you. That's the answer, right? So it's like we, the answer is that is the teacher. And it is hard that, that we were not retaining them at the, at the right level. But I think we don't, we don't um, credit them when we come in as the expert and say the technology is the answer. So I love that approach. Totally, Brenda, who owns the answer, right? And if, if you come in with the answer, then you own it. But if you help someone else come to it, then they own it. Yeah. And that might even come with the realization that that the technology supports the design. All through the pandemic, um, in our screens, I don't have it up behind me today, but I had a screen that said, um, handwritten by my daughter on the first day, that says, technology supports design, 
right? Mm -hmm. So yes, because we knew tech would be a huge thing through the pandemic, but it was, it's, we knew that because we knew it was a big thing before the pandemic. Um, and it continues afterwards. It really is, how can we design the experience? And Brenda, this brings us to maybe uh, a big culminating point when it comes back to AAC and literacy. You said it, the tech will fail. Oh, and we've seen that tons of times. And I don't mean like the battery will die. I mean, oh, we provided this app. It was the right app. We 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 thought it was the right app because we got all the stakeholders to to make the decision together. Someone expert didn't decide. Uh, we had the parents involved. We had the speech therapist involved. We had the teacher involved. We had the outside speech therapist involved. We had the advocate involved. We had the administrator involved. We had the occupational therapist involved. We all sat together. We decided this is what we wanted to implement. Mm, and now a year later maybe the kid plateaus a little bit or our data has become stagnant. Maybe we want to change it. Let's change that app. Let's change it. Well, if we made the, we did our due diligence to choose a robust system in the first place, right. it's chances are what needs to change is not the app. You probably got it right. It needs to be the instruction around the app. What, right. what can we do that's more fun, more engaging? Uh, can we have we played Minecraft with it yet? Have we have we done um, uh, some this meaningful instruction that we've been talking about? Or are we asked, are we doing a thing where the kid comes in every day and it's drill and kill and you're going to spend 40 minutes reading a book that you didn't choose? And yeah, see, we're doing literacy instruction. Hooray for us. Like, no, wait, let's make school a fun place where you want to be. Um, and and. Let's focus on changing the instruction, not changing the app. Right. I always say, love the one you're with, <laughs> you know, come with the dance with the girl that got you here because it's actually, as long as it's robust, it's going to be, it's going to work. It's just, how do we get more creative and make it more motivating? Right. Yeah. Totally. And fun and fun. Like the whole experience, if the first takeaway, the first like little bit of wisdom is believe they can, uh, believe they will is the better phrase, believe they will. Then the last little bit of wisdom is the whole experience should be fun. Uh, learning in a compliance driven sort of experience where everything is dictated to you. It's not fun for the educators. It's not fun. No one got in uh, education to read scripts to kids. You know what I mean? Oh. Like, Right. You got, you got you got your degree in uh, to be uh, innovative, you know, right. and so right. Uh, right. let's make learning fun again. I agree. Yeah. So, Chris, we know we need to make learning fun. We do believe they will. Where what is that next first step in, for literacy and AAC? What do you have a starting point you would say to the teacher who says, I, I read it, but I just need to know what am I doing now? <laughs> Well, it's really, so my very first thing I will be looking to is who can I connect with? Mm -hmm. Meaning you doing this in a bubble will be much more difficult than if you can do it with a team of people. And right. so I always think of um, there's the classroom, then there's the greater community uh, in the school, and then there's the greater community in your school district, and then there's the greater community um, in your local area, and then we have never been more connected than we are right now, listening to podcasts, being on social networks, where there's a whole extended family out there that you can lean into to learn more, to get to get started, you know, um, learn from other places like this podcast is a great place. You're already taking the first step. If you're listening to this, uh, go mm -hmm. to the talking with tech podcast and do a search through there. Uh, make sure you're, you're on the different social media networks and following people that are trying to do this and following the hashtags. Um, and then reach out just locally, like, you know what? I kind of want to start, um, 
by building in some literacy literacy experiences. Um, what does that look like? All, what what literacy experiences are already embraced in my neck of the woods, and mm-hmm. how can I ride those coattails? Yeah, great, great advice. Great advice. Yeah, for sure. Well, we are want to be respectful of your time, so we probably need to wrap this up. But what what do you want people to know about the work you're doing now? Well, geez, what do I want people to? Do? Um, coming up are you speaking to closing the gap are you going to ATIA are you all those so I'm not going to close tech with talk talk yes 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 okay so check out my website chrisbouguet.com that uh, has a list of presentations all the presentations I've done it's got a list a a link to all the presentations that are available like that you can go uh, click on and, and look at videos that I've done um, and it's got all my upcoming presentations as well. So you can see where I'm going to be. Uh, definitely check out the Talking With Tech podcast, talkingwithtech.org. Um, there's always room for more podcasts. You, most people are probably listening to this or doing it during their commute or, or exercising, right? So right. when you're done with this one, flip over to our podcast uh, and listen to that. We've got five years, closing in on six years worth of content. So it can be a little cumbersome um, to be like, oh, just jump in anywhere or do a search like for a topic, like, yeah, I got a kid that is a cortical visual impairment. And the Awe and Wonder podcast is kind of new. They don't have a lot of episodes yet on cortical and visual impairment yet, right? Growth mindset. But, um, But talking with tech does, so we go listen to them. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Use use our podcasts as uh, as compliments of each other. You know. Yeah, yeah. definitely, definitely. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us. It's been so fun to talk to you, and I I learned a lot just in this conversation. Definitely. Thank you so much. Thank you for this podcast and for the work you're doing, and for uh, for trusting me to be on it with you. I so appreciate it. Have fun. Thanks. Thanks.